From the Global Compact Network Australia, I'm Kylie Porter and this is The Pressures Report. This week on The Pressures Report, we're exploring what technologies are currently available to help us combat climate change and meet the goals of the 2015 Paris Agreement. We'll examine the challenges and complexities that exist to deploying these technologies at large scales and we'll ask what businesses and us as individuals can do today to drive the transformative change necessary to create a more sustainable and equitable future for all. Joining us to unpack these questions is Damon Gamu, award-winning director of 2040 and Nat Sugarfilm. Welcome to The Precious Report, Damon, and thank you very much for joining me. My pleasure. Nice to be here, Kylie. Now, before we have a chat about climate change, I'm quite interested in your background. The thing that you talked about at the start of 2040 was how your daughter was an inspiration to the film. And I understand that you now have another baby, a nine-month-old. And I'm just interested, what really spurred your career to head in this direction from being an actor to producing really films around the social context that we live in today? Yeah, I always felt that I wanted to contribute in some way. I've always felt quite strongly about certain issues, but I think growing up I was addled with a lot of insecurities and anxieties and and sort of had a a story in my head that was around my lack of worthiness and who who was I to speak out and uh, I wasn't going to be able to make a difference. And so in a lot of ways um, I was drawn to acting because you get to hide behind other people, you get to tell other people's stories, uh, you get fed well, you're often given praise in some form or lauded for something that you do. So it was quite an intoxicating career path for a while. But apart from maybe a couple of jobs, I was lucky enough to do a job with uh, David Goldpool or Rolf to here called The Tracker and another one called Balibo, which looked at the lives of the five Australian journalists that were killed in East Timor. Every other job didn't really resonate with me in any way. And I always felt quite frustrated being on sets and I felt like I was wasting a lot of my time and I had things to say, but I wasn't able to say them. So I sort of went on a little bit of a journey with that uh, when I met my my now wife, Zoe, and um, just began, I guess, to unravel some of those patterns of behaviour and patterns of thought that had uh, held me back. And through various means, uh, started to break through there and, and, and gain a bit of confidence, started to sort of make things and test them out and show them to friends. And I just started to get a sense that you know there was some value in what I was doing. People were resonating with the things that I was making. And so that really, uh, I then made a film for Tropfest, which won Tropfest. And after that, I was sort of approached by a couple of different production companies that said, look, are you interested in making a feature film? And at the time, there was a lot of discussion about sugar. And I just thought, wow, this, is a, this would be a really fun film to make, to tell the story about sugar. It just lends itself to all sorts of bright neons and very rich colour palettes for filmmaking. So... That's really how that started. And then obviously learned a huge amount making that film and, and I guess wanted to do an experiment where I didn't want to just make the film. I wanted to ensure that after people had seen it and they, they were open, they felt inspired, uh, that there were tools available for them to take action and continue on that journey. And I, that often happens. I, I love documentaries, but I often feel there's either rage, anger, frustration, inspiration, whatever that emotion is when it finishes. And, and often there's nowhere to, to put that emotion. And so uh, you very can, you can easily find yourself scrolling through Facebook or other social media outlets. And then the, the inertia of the system engulfs you and, and you, that, that, that emotion dissipates. So I really wanted to make sure that there were things people could do once they'd seen the sugar film and obviously we had such a wonderful response to that and I saw what impact film could have 
at a policy level, at a school level, at a corporate level. And that really, I guess, inspired me to then make 2040 and, and use all the things I'd learned there in terms of not just making a film, but developing a, an entire ecosystem that allowed people to, to get involved, to bring some of the solutions to life, but also for that film to, to permeate the culture as, as, as deeply as I could by bringing on aligned organisations that were going to use the film uh, through their networks. And it's, it is a brilliant, it is a brilliant film. And um, Balibo is also a brilliant film on that, um, raised some very important issues and discussions that were, that were happening around the time in East Timor. In terms of 2040, it's actually one of Australia's highest grossing documentaries, which is very impressive and something you should be very proud of. What was it that inspired you to create a climate change focused documentary? And, you know, what I understand what you're just saying before around this, this need to do, do something for the better good and, and ensure that you've got something that inspires people to actually take take action but was there a specific thing that happened in your life that made you go climate change is absolutely my core focus I guess it was that I couldn't understand my own reticence in terms of engaging with the topic that that I had a, a daughter I cared about these issues I care about the planet but I would find myself not even completing certain articles about the topic and I just was interested in the psychology of that and so just explored a few areas there. I had a few interviews with some people here and overseas and just started to learn how we respond to certain narratives and, and storytelling and especially around issues that have a negative bent to them or in relation to the climate. It's a very dystopian story in terms of portraying a future that we're marching into. Our brains struggle to deal with that. If our limbic system is activated, then it has this relationship with the prefrontal cortex where they both sort of can't be activated at the same time. And the prefrontal cortex is where we problem solve and we think creatively. So if the limbic system's engaged, it shuts down that ability to problem solve. Yeah. Plus I also and learned that we sort of have this window of tolerance where we can only take so much negative information. We only have a capacity for a certain amount of overwhelming news. And I guess if you put climate change alongside all sorts of other ecological and social issues that we, we have to deal with right now, I just thought, gee whiz, even though it's so important to know that, say, the reefs are dying or the, or the ice caps are melting. It is a big ask for people that have had a busy, hectic day at work, they're juggling two kids, to then go to the cinema on a Tuesday night and sit through an hour and a half of watching the reefs die. It is a challenging narrative, and I think we've got to be a bit more strategic in how we think about presenting some of this information to bring more people into the conversation. So I just started thinking, wow, there's something in this, like is there a different way to tell this story? Not to make it binary and say one's right or wrong, but is there another narrative that can run alongside this sort of emergency call to action dystopian narrative? Can, can we sort of play with the idea of solutions and hope and try and bring people into the conversation that way? So that, that was really the kernel of, of how that all started. So in, in effect, you were combating all of the climate change anxiety that we hear about people experiencing today, which I think is a really good notion. And as somebody who's who's worked in the business sector for pretty much my whole career, like I completely agree with you. There's always been this dystopian element about climate change when in actual fact, what our responses are to climate change are complete positive impacts on the world. You know, we're, we're, we are able to change the way that we operate and the way our society operates and our economies operate to create this beautifully clean, pollution-free or reduced pollution environment. Now, 
I can't understand why anyone wouldn't think that's a positive. Within the film, you you talk about this notion of fact-based dreaming, which I found a really interesting concept when I was watching the film. Can you explain what you meant by that and I guess how it underpins what you're you're doing now following all of the success of 2040? Yeah, I think that um, right from the beginning, once the idea landed, I thought, okay, so where, where could this film go horribly wrong? And straight away, I thought that the worst case scenario here is that I paint this utopian, fanciful, unrealistic picture of the future. That would be very misleading, I think, to give false hope to the public, but I also would be a terrible case of bad parenting in that I was making this film for my daughter. I didn't ever want to be able to say to her, hey, it's all going to be fine. It's great. We'll just do this and we'll get there. So there had to be a way to still do the dreaming element and do the visioning, but make sure that it was a muscular hope or, or a grounded hope. And this idea of fact-based dreaming really is that anything I show in 2040 in the future when we leap ahead has to already exist today. It can't be something I make up. It, it can't be a technology that might ramp up in the next 20 years, which is very likely. Everything I show has to already exist and just be scalable. So I think what that did is for a lot of people to watch the film is give them a sense as I discovered after making it for four years that we actually have everything we need to do this right now we aren't waiting for this this fix or this or this you know technology to land that's going to solve everything we've got everything we need in this moment we just lack the political will we've obviously got the vested interests in the way and we have inertia in this system which is very reluctant for, for obviously the people who step back from or change so but that I think is the takeaway for a lot of people so I think that was really important. If that wasn't in there, I don't think the film would have resonated anywhere near as much as it had, and I would certainly not be proud of it. So I just wasn't willing to put something out there unless I, I did think it was plausible. And I, I understand full well how enormous the task is ahead of us. And there is several pathways we could take, and, and the majority, you have to say at this moment, aren't that positive. But mm. I think it's important for people to know that we can do it. And as that, is, that is a great starting point at a time where there are these nihilistic narratives emerging that we're all doomed, it's, it's worthless. Some of those are, I have to say, being perpetuated by the fossil fuel industry. That is a tactic they have now pivoted to, is to put out this nihilism because they know it activates that limbic system, it paralyzes people, and then they're, they're not going to take action. I mean, what's the point? We're all doomed. So I think more than ever, we need to be pushing out fact-based, grounded, solutions showing what people are doing in real time inspiring them to, to motivate other people and get on board to say that you know we, we do have a shot at doing this but it's going to take an enormous galvanizing of a whole range of sectors but we can do it and that's the first step to moving forward on the on the fact-based thing it's interesting because since COVID-19 which has obviously been a huge human tragedy and we've we've been very very lucky here in Australia but one of the things that it has shifted in Australia is a decision-making framework based on facts and science. You know, the, the government's response has very much been based on the factual evidence around the impacts that COVID-19 can have on, on individuals and larger populations. Do you think that's also a turning point in Australia for climate change and for that a better policy environment that actually does take the underlying facts of climate change, i.e. that we are currently on a trajectory to even a three-degree world, and that that will actually be a turning point for us here in Australia? 
I would have had a very different answer a month ago and thought that, yes, there were lots of signs, very encouraging signs in the way that ideology was sort of superseded by facts and listening to experts. I thought that was incredibly encouraging. And we saw all the countries that did the best were very good with that. But I would say the signals that are being sent by our government in the last two weeks are a little bit counter to that because we're talking about this sort of gas-led recovery. That seems to be the buzz term at the moment. Anyone that understands the science around gas is clearly, if they're not acting, if, if they're acting despite the science, they're still stuck in ideology because any expert will tell you that gas is not a transition fuel. In fact, if it leaks more than 2.8% in extraction or delivery, it is more deleterious to the climate than coal because it is methane, which is incredibly heat trapping gas, as many people will know. And BP estimates that gas is leaking about 3.2% worldwide. So for that reason alone, it's a terrible choice. Economically, it's not a great choice. The US has cheaper gas than we do. We have no economic advantage there. Our economic advantage is wind and solar. We should be absolutely pushing that path. Plus the renewables, wind and solar plus storage option is now cheaper than any other source. So if we were listening to the science and listening to the facts, we would be talking about this renewables led economy, building electric car infrastructure. But unfortunately, we still have such links at that political level to the vested interest, to the status quo. But unfortunately, there is such pollution at a political level in regards to vested interests and trying to keep the status quo and try and expand this fossil fuel sector through gas. That to me, that is unfortunately a, a real detour away from acknowledging the science. I mean, as you know, we've got to be getting our emissions down by about 7% every year by 2030 to avoid to, to reach our Paris goals. We are not going to do that if we build a $6 billion Trans-Australia gas pipeline. So that, that has been quite painful because obviously this is a, an incredible opportunity in a moment we have. William Davies says that to experience a crisis is to inhabit a world that is temporarily up for grabs. And I think all of us felt that probably a month ago that, wow, what, a, what an opportunity. We might re-emerge from this making sensible choices, listening to science, but unfortunately, we're not getting those signals from a national level. State level, I think there's lots of positivity around and, and signals that, that they are heading in the right direction, but our federal government is lagging behind, sadly. I don't know if you're aware, but the, the government released consultation paper on the technology roadmap, which yeah. you know, fell through from Nev Power's commission around looking at gas as a transition fuel. If you were to write a paper for that today, you mentioned that Australia should be focused on solar and wind. What would you say to the government about how to address the barriers that are stopping us from deploying those technologies at a scale that would enable it to replace fossil fuels? Yeah, I mean, I did read that, that roadmap, the technology roadmap. And, and to be honest, there were, some, there were some good signs in there. The fact that they were talking about a quick you know, infrastructure development on electric cars, that renewables were mentioned in there carbon sequestration through soil and other biomass, that they were all the positive things. But I think even the Australian energy market operator, EMO, says that our grid could be 75% renewables by 2025 with the right policy signals. So, you know, this, this talk of having gas for decades to come is just nonsense. I mean, of course, we're going to need some of it to transition. We can't be sort of purist about this. But, you know, we just have such an advantage. We have more wind and sun than or as much as any other country on earth. Why wouldn't we utilise that? And we also have a very unique setup where, you know, 
far north Queensland gets a winter sun and gets counter-prevailing winds. So we actually could set up a really interesting system in our country that could share the load. We'll move away from this idea of needing this base load and start to have this distributed and dispatchable energy. There'd be rooftop solar. We'd be using Tasmania as a battery. Uh, the time differences in WA could mean we could build interconnectors across the country. Like we, We've got all this here. We've got the know-how. We've got the expertise. We've got the resources. And I think if you asked most Australians, they would say, absolutely, that's what we want. Now, of course, we have to be aware of the jobs that we're going to lose in the coal sector. But come on, we can do that with common sense. We can transition. We can retrain and reskill. This is an important sector, but it's, you know, it's less than 2% of the workforce that work in the coal industry. So, sorry, in fact, it's 0.5% and 2% in mining. And yet we're carrying on like they are the entire, you know, all the workers in, 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 in our economy. So... I think it's, uh, we all know that it's possible, but we all also know that there are, you know, we have some issues at that political level with, with blocks to progress because of the vested interests that are spending lots of money. And that's a great shame because uh, that's not the Australia that I grew up in. That's, you know, I, I was very proud to be an Australian, but I, that has waned in the last four years going around the world and seeing what other countries are doing and then coming back here and seeing how stuck we are when we should be absolutely out on the front foot and be actually a leader in the new low carbon economy. That's our great advantage. We should be exporting solar and wind to all parts of Asia. We're about to experiment doing Singapore. If that works, let's start doing it to Indonesia, all these other countries that are gonna need it as they phase away from coal. So I think it's about visioning, telling those stories, letting the Australian public know that this is possible. We can create jobs, we can build stronger communities. All that narrative needs to get out there, but again, what we, what we battle is that we have in this country, we're now in the top five most concentrated media landscapes in the world. And as we know, a lot of that media it has links to extractive industries. So they're not telling these news stories. In fact, they're, they're pushing against these news stories to keep the status quo. So that is a huge concern in this country because I think if most people were aware of the opportunities, they would embrace them. But their filter of news is not telling them those stories. There's a, there's a few big things that you brought up there around you know, this notion of transition and a just transition, Australia's grid, which has been the subject of, of political debate for quite some time, and that lack of federal government policy that, that provides the right market signals and directions to, to business to enable the shift to net zero. If we keep living in this environment where we don't have really clear indicators or a policy environment from government. Do you think that we can use all of those technologies in the way that you've just described purely through the business part of our society? Like, is that possible or do we absolutely need government to come along for the journey? Last year, I think what was particularly troubling was one of the biggest solar farm builders in the world pulled out of building in Australia because they said it's too difficult. We don't know what the goal is. We don't, we're not getting the right signals, so we're not going to build here anymore. But that's what happens when government doesn't come along for the ride. I do think we're seeing enormous momentum regardless because of what the business sector is doing. We see enormous momentum at a state level. I think if you look at, you know, South Australia is likely to be 100% renewable before 2030. Tasmania has set a goal of 200% renewables by 2040. Uh, WA, even Queensland, Victoria are all starting to do or send the right signals that they are moving to this renewable economy and they've all set targets of 2050 zero emissions. So, you know, that's where I find a little bit of hope. But the whole thing would just be 
far more, would just be rapidly sped up if we had that government support. And there, we saw even last week, that WWF put out a proposal that Australia should be not aiming for 100% renewables, but 700% renewables. So we can use all that excess energy to, to build these manufacturing industries, to export that wind and solar um, to other parts. So that's not going to happen unless we get the right signals. So it just depends on the degree at which we want to actually make this transition, how fast we want to make it and how much of a powerhouse we want to be. Because obviously the business sector can only get so far. We need the full buy-in from, from the government as well. But sadly, I just don't think we're going to get it at the moment. And so we've just got to keep marching on, trust the states, keep trying to do it ourselves. And I do think eventually they'll come round. Or they might be playing a bit of a game where it is going on behind the scenes much more than we realise, but they're sort of having to pander to some of the further right-wing members of their party. Who knows what's going on? But there is certainly momentum regardless, and there is an inertia that's building within the industry regardless, which, which is something we should be positive about. And I think, to your point, the Australian energy market operator and their 75% projection, and then Ross Garno and his book that came out at the end of last year labelling Australia as the superpower of the future because of our the way that our country is and the fact that we have an awful abundance of renewable energy from the likes of wind and solar but also the minerals and metals that actually support the building of that infrastructure that's still part of our our broader mining sector here in australia and you you brought up this notion of you know coal coal workers and and the fact that they are going to have to transition and we will have to find decent work for those communities, particularly given a lot of them are in regional parts of Australia. The jobs in that area are predominantly supported by coal-related jobs, be it it mining or power stations. But we also know that a lot of, in fact, I think it's all of Australia's power stations are scheduled for closure before 2050. And we've been undertaking some research, which will come out in the next couple of months, on the just transition and what opportunities are available there. And one of the things that we came across on in our research is that apparently beekeeping is a similar style or nature of job as people who work in coal mines. And I, I was thinking about that and overlaying it with the parts of 2040 where you, you talk about regenerative agriculture and, and some of the agricultural practices that we can put in place to reduce carbon in the atmosphere, but just broadly improve our our ecosystem. Were there any other sort of technologies or initiatives that you saw either here in Australia or on your travels overseas that really showed how we can transition away from fossil fuels into cleaner energy systems and give people also the opportunity to continue working in jobs where they feel valued? Yeah, I mean, I think that's probably part of the narrative that gets lost sometimes is that some of these new industries we're talking about, I don't think it's just a, as simple as a job for job swap out. I think that the new industries we're creating have incredible purpose and meaning and are contributing to a better future for all living things. And what a, what a great way to sell that, that these are careers that are actually helping to transform our systems and regenerate our landscapes and our cultures. I mean, that's, that's not a job. And, and I dare say that's, that's a career that a lot of people want, that they're feeling a complete lack of that in the job that they're currently doing now. So, so there's an opportunity to really reframe that. And there are an extraordinary amount of opportunities available. I mean, we've just seen Beyond Zero Emissions put out their report of a million new jobs created mm-hmm. to make this transition. Paul Hawken, who I work with very closely, who, uh, who wrote Project Drawdown in, in the US, 
Uh, he's, I'm working on a series with him for his next book. And he looks at the, a billion jobs that be, can be created worldwide as we transition to this, to this better economy and, and wow. ruining our landscapes and whatnot. So again, that's just, that narrative has, has not cut through the gatekeepers of, of the status quo, because that's incredibly exciting. And that is a great way to reframe it. But what we have here is a chance to reframe this whole story as not one of depravity and sacrifice and, and relinquish, but to be a part of a time in history that humans have never had before, where we get to fundamentally change the way we interact with each other and all living systems. I mean, what a gift. That's, that's why I do what I do. That's what I want to do for the rest of my life is work at that because this is an extraordinary moment in time. Now, we may not get there, but what a wonderful thing to pursue for the rest of your days. You know, I would much rather do that than accept this nihilism, a defeatist attitude and struggle to get out of, the, out of bed in the morning and just spend my time bickering with people online. That's not a life I want to live. What we need people to do is get out of that limbic response and trying to prove who's right on all sorts of different stories going on. Get out and bloody plant trees and get your hands in the soil. I mean, the atmosphere doesn't care about who's wrong or right online. It is doing what it's going to keep doing. And it needs us to get involved and, and, and take action. So, and as you probably know, as soon as you do take action, so much of that anxiety alleviates because you're moving forward and you feel like you're contributing. It's the helper high. You know, you suddenly feel like you are doing something with purpose and it makes you feel good and you see the benefits. So if we can encourage enough people to do that and get excited by the potential of this transition, then who knows what we can achieve. And that, is largely or almost entirely why May 2040 is to have an intervention on the current narrative, have an intervention on this, the imagery we see of our future at the moment, which is, you know, any Hollywood film is, is robots chasing humans in slums without any nature anywhere. Like it doesn't have to be that way. We can have a really abundant, thriving future. We might not get there by 2040, but let's at least attempt to be somewhere on that path by 2040 and then leave a wonderful legacy. And it, it, I completely agree with you. I mean, I do what I do and have been involved in sustainability for probably close to 20 years now. And it's absolutely helps with making me feel good about what I do. And that's, that's despite the frustrations when, you know, the private sector or government are not acting at the speed in which you might hope for. And I think that's one challenge that we'll continue to deal with for, for various reasons, some of which you've already mentioned. But I find this whole notion of that you were talking about where all of these things make people feel good and business knows that people are looking for purpose-driven organisations to work for. People no longer, particularly the, the younger generations, they don't want to work for a company where shareholder primacy is the key goal. They want to work for companies where they've got a strong purpose and a purpose that's committed to broader environmental and social agendas. And the, the buzzword that seems to be coming out now is this notion of multi-stakeholder capitalism. And <laughs> I'd be interested to hear from you about, you know, if what's it going to take? In terms of all of the stakeholders, you know, we, as individuals, we can go and dig up our own backyards and, and plant you know, our own trees or our own vegetable patches and, and herb gardens, etc. And we can do that as individuals. And individuals, I think we have immense power, but as a collective group, we have even more. 
Mm. And so what is it that business needs to do to harness that collective power within those businesses from their employees who are already invested in this brilliant future and I guess show us what this notion of multi-stakeholder capitalism means. I think it's important to go right back to try and understand the core of the problem and why tinkering around the edges or coming up with new buzz terms isn't going to get us there. That climate change, as you know, is just one symptom. We've seen ocean acidification. We've seen the US, the UN says we've got 60 years of topsoil left. We've got too many chemicals on our land. We're seeing populations of mammals and birds and reptiles down 60% since 1970. We're going to have more plastic in the ocean than fish by 2050. All these things are symptoms that are telling us that fundamentally, at a systemic level, we are flawed. The architecture is actually not serving us anymore. And we've breached these ecological boundaries, but we're also starting to see the breaches in the social boundaries. So we're seeing what's happening in the US right now racially, but we're also seeing the inequality there. I mean, it's just astronomical what levels of income inequality we've reached. I mean, we've got that version in Australia, but you think of America, I did some stats the other day for a talk I gave where the median net worth income in a household, average household in the US is $97,000. And to put that in perspective, 97,000 seconds is one day and two hours. Jeff Bezos' net worth is $149 billion. 149 billion seconds is 4,725 years. Mm. So the difference between the median one day and two hours and Bezos, 4,700 years. Nowhere else in our kingdom does a species, plant or animal of the same species have that level of inequality between them. And that shift in power distorts our system to such a degree that it starts to unravel. So I think unless we address the fundamental rules of our game, which at the moment are extraction, domination, rivalry, win at all cost, accumulate as much as you can, get power, set the rules of the game, then do what you want. We're not going to get anywhere. Like we have to actually address that the core rules of that game and start to shift them because we know even this, this fantasy of exponential growth, we now we're using a hundred billion metric tons of resources every year and the planet can only sustain 50 billion. So if we're growing 3%, we're going to double the economy roughly every 20 years. We're already breaching our boundaries. What happens in 20 years? We wipe out nearly every living system. So it's an absolute suicide mission to think that we can keep doing what we're doing despite all this feedback, these guises that are popping all around, we're just seeing all this feedback saying, you guys, wake up, you can't keep doing this. So unless we understand that, I mean, companies need to fundamentally address what they're doing with their resources. Are they embracing a more circular or shared economy? So we're not just chewing through those researches and, and crossing these ecological boundaries. What are they doing with their energy and the supply chains? How are they getting their energy? Are they actually using clean energy? How are they treating their workers in terms of income inequality and, and, and the social environment? Those things are absolutely at the core. If they're not addressed legitimately, then we're going to fly off the cliff and, and follow the, the path of other great civilizations like the Mesopotamians and Romans, all who suffered a similar fate. So that, that's big stuff for a company to take on board, but I, I don't think it's insurmountable. I think we're seeing examples of it now. And I often use the analogy of like the human body, that we have these individual cells. If you can get your cell healthy, 
you can encourage the cell next to you. And if they get healthy, suddenly we actually form this really functioning ecosystem. But right now, there are sort of cells turning cancerous everywhere and they are polluting the entire system. So we just have to get it right in our homes and where we work. And if we all do that, yep, we're gonna get some of the way, but then we also need to save some time for that advocacy piece. Can we meet up with a group of people, other mothers at our school or, or fathers and go to the school and ask what changes they're making? Can we get together with 50 people in our community and take it to the, our local council or MP and say, hey, what are we doing here? We, we need change. And any MP I've spoken to said that, that, that weight of numbers is what makes the difference. If they get 15 single emails from different people, okay, yeah, they might take notice. But if they get a batch of people that say, we want to come in and meet you and hear us out, then there's a much better chance of action being taken. So that's what's ahead of us. And that's why the task is so enormous, that we can't keep tiptoeing around the edge of this anymore and think that keep cups are going to get us out of it or that, you know, just these little changes we're going to make will add up to some great train change or transition. No, we all need to find that part of us, that passion in us, the thing that lights us up, the thing that makes us feel slightly uncomfortable. And we have to move through it for the sake of our children and for the sake of this entire planet. And that's, I see people doing that, but that's what's required at the moment. We have to actually find our courage. Do you worry, and I, I don't mean to put a damper on it, but do you worry a bit about complacency? Because I think about when, I mean, the time that I was at university was when there was the big protests about East Timor and East Timor's independence and, you know, the swell of action and demands on the, the Indonesian government to, to let them become independent was, was quite massive. And I feel like the online environment um, has created this ability for advocacy to be armchair-based. And we can say, yes, we support the protests that are happening in the US around racism. And yes, we, we support reducing the number of Indigenous Australians inca incarcerated when you look at it you know, holistically against the whole Australian population. And we can go out and, and support Greta Thunberg and, and the school strikes. But then you talk to people and if they're placed in situations where they have to stand up for one of those causes, quite often we have a fear of retribution or we, we have a fear that we're, we're going to be misunderstood. And I worry sometimes when I, when I look at or talk to Australians that we're a little bit complacent. We're happy to sit there and verbally say that we support it, but when it actually comes to translating that into action, we really struggle. And I wonder, I'd like, you know, the notion of getting a collective group of people and going to your MP or going to the local school, that all makes sense. But I think even in there, there's still something in society at the moment that is, is preventing us from pushing through that uncomfortableness and from understanding that actually you need to feel uncomfortable. Change is uncomfortable. Any form of change is uncomfortable. And I guess, you know, what would your advice be to those people who perhaps are a bit more comfortable with their complacency? Yeah, there's a few parts to this. I would say that first, we shouldn't underestimate people's willingness to take action and get involved. I just think a lot of them don't know what to do. It feels so overwhelming. The system seems too big. What difference am I going to make? So we did a little experiment off the back of 2040 where we sort of set up this climate action plan where we teamed up with about 50 different organizations 
we asked people to fill out this questionnaire, which wasn't prescriptive and saying, look, everyone should, you know, eat less meat and ride your bike to work and we'll get there. But saying, right, what are the things that light you up? How much time do you have available? What are your interests? Do you have any money to give? Do you want to donate? What did you particularly resonate with in the film? And then we gave them six or seven things to do. And just to see the response to that, I think has been quite an interesting insight. The fact that so many of the things that we've shown in the film have now been brought to life by the public because they connected with them, they felt hopeful and inspired, and then they just went straight and took action. So the seaweed platform that we show in the film, that's now getting built in Tasmania. It's the first one in the world because of people's donations. The microgrid technology, again, we raised almost a million dollars in three weeks because people loved that idea and then they had the opportunity to not only help it bring it to life, but we gave them a stake in it. It was like an equity crowdfund so they could also own some of it as well. Educating girls, uh, teachers, over 25,000 teachers have downloaded the curriculum materials that have gone out to 950,000 kids. I think people are ready to get involved. They just don't know what to do. So the more that we can provide entry points for people across a range of areas and in different ways and techniques, again, not being prescriptive, catering to the individuals that we are, then we have a better chance of, of getting them to, to step, step aboard and, and get involved. I think one of the main barriers we face is that we have woefully inadequate tools to deal with the complexity of this problem too. If you think about what's happening on social media right now, the way we communicate at a time of such complexity is through these tiny little sound bites and, and grabs that is just nowhere near what we require in this moment. Not to mention the misuse and manipulation of those platforms that we've ended up with this horrifically polluted information environment where people are arguing over whether a fact is a fact and, and whose story is right. And again, we talk this limbic response. They're stuck in this fight or flight mode. So no one's actually moving forward and taking action because they're, they're having these battles online with each other about who's right. I mean, that's a, a massive distraction and a massive barrier. So unless we address the ways we communicate and have dialectics more than debates about some of these topics and reach a goal together and listen to each other instead of this intense tribalism that these platforms are forcing in, us into, I don't think we're going to get there. So we have so many things working against people to do the right thing at the moment. And it's completely understandable why people feel overwhelmed, they disengage, they want to switch off from, from the media or from or the news. So we have to make it easier and we have to try and come up with new ways of, of hosting legitimate, progressive, thoughtful, nuanced conversations to help us unravel from this. Because the path we're going in is, I think we can all feel, is, is not one that's serving anyone and certainly not going to serve the planet. I think that's very useful. And I'm conscious that we're getting to the point where we need to start wrapping up. But before we go, I would like to ask you two more questions that we ask all of our podcast guests. And the first one is, what keeps you up at night? My own brain ticking is what keeps me up at night. I think I've, I struggle to switch off. I feel like I am, um, especially in this moment, you know, we, it's an extraordinary time and uh, it is hard to, um, to step away from trying to understand what it all means, to find out what is true, what does the future look like, what does this mean for future generations. I feel like there's so much to contemplate and consider at the moment. And that it is also a moment where the door has just been pried open a little bit for a new opportunity or, or radical suggestions and ideas. So there's also that sort of, I feel this compelling need to, 
to, to get these things out there right now and let people know there are different ways of doing things because because all options are on the table uh, in this moment. So that keeps me up at night. Yeah. But I am largely positive. I must admit, I, I, I don't spend too much time on the social medias and going down the, the, the conventional sort of narratives that are coming out from media. I do spend a lot of my time looking at people that are focusing on solutions and what they're up to and what they're achieving. And there's enormous hope when you do that. And when you shift your focus, because there are some incredible humans out there that are just trying with all their might to come up with these ideas or bring communities together or teach kids. And, and, you know, if more of us focused on them and joined them, uh, I think we'd all be better off and, and resisted the lure of this sort of, um, intoxicating ego other platforms that, that we've created so i do i would say i'm largely optimistic um but i certainly have my moments where i how could you not be deeply concerned about what we're doing and especially when you've got two young daughters yeah and i i understand that my i've got young children as well and my watching my son watch your film 2040 and his eyes lit up and the number of questions that i've had since then about predominantly about well why don't we do that it's so easy look what he said we could do um it really highlighted to me how naturally positive children are and it'd be great to harness for all of us to harness a lot more of that positivity in our lives yeah they're, they're the hope. They're, they are the hope and you know that you've seen it yourself but they're so articulate on this on this topic they're so emboldened to make change especially the ones that are leading these movements around the world and you know I've met so many of them now, 16, 17 year olds, a lot of them young girls and just, you know, you can't help but feel hopeful. They are so turbocharged and driven and laser focused that they're going to make this happen. And uh, I think once they accumulate some power and and can, can influence, then there's a chance that things might change very, very quickly. I just hope we haven't done too much damage before they get that opportunity. I hope so too. And our final question, although I'm, I'm, I could probably guess what you're going to say, but I won't. If you could solve one pressure that society is facing overnight, what would it be? If I had a magic wand, I would change the underlying metaphor or the story that we have for our relationship to the natural world. That I think the beauty of pre-scientific revolution, so many cultures, their metaphor was around custodianship. Um, the Chinese, their metaphor was reverent guests of the land. And I think this affects enormously the way they behave and interact with, with the living systems. And since the scientific revolution, we've really, our metaphor has been extraction. So I think that so many things would begin to unravel and change if we, if we re-established that metaphor to be healing or regenerating or whatever it might be, we could come up with something together. If that became the core of how we operated, then I think we'd, uh, we'd turn things around very, very quickly. Thank you very much, Damon, for joining us today on The Pressures Report. And thank you too to our listeners. You can subscribe to the podcast on your favourite podcast platform and leave us a review. Join us next week for our final episode of season one as we explore artificial intelligence and human rights with Australian Human Rights Commissioner Edward Santow. I'm Kylie Porter and that's all from The Pressures Report. The Pressures Report is a podcast by the Global Compact Network Australia, produced by Matt Wall Productions with music by Jake Amy.